The next time that you are traveling east on I-70, pay very close attention when you travel through the little burg of Wright City, Missouri, as you approach the, the city limits of, of St. Louis. File it under strange but true, but that little blink or you'll miss it town is the birthplace of two of the greatest American theologians of the 20th century, Reinhold Niebuhr and his younger brother, Richard. Now, I don't expect any but the most nerdy among us to have any idea who those men are, but I will say that you have been impacted by the work of younger Richard. In 1951, he he wrote this book called Christ and Culture that frames how uh, American church views cultural engagement to this very day. In it, he outlined five approaches, uh, and and I'm not going to bore you with a lecture on them all, but, but I do want to highlight for you the two that really kind of rule the roost, so to speak, when it comes to how Christians view culture today. One approach is Christ against culture. Now, grossly, grossly oversimplified, Christ against culture is the approach that views all expressions of culture outside of the church with suspicion and is hopelessly corrupted by sin. Therefore, they are to be rejected, avoided, and non-Christian culture is to be warred against, to be fought against. This is the dominant approach of the religious right. Another approach is Christ of culture, and again, grossly oversimplified. In Christ of culture approaches, cultural expressions as a whole are accepted uncritically and are celebrated as being a good thing. Christ of culture Christians uh, see little or no conflict between culture and Christian truth, primarily by accommodating Christian truth to accommodate non-Christian culture. This is the dominant approach of the religious left. Now, on this beautiful fall Sunday morning, how do you think those two approaches are working out for us in America today? The influence of Christianity on our culture, which was never as pronounced as what we told ourselves it was, but was present, has utterly collapsed. And we are in an irreversible and barring some kind of mighty move of God trek towards a post-Christian society. Now, here's the secret that your favorite bloggers and social media ghettos and favorite 24-hour news cycle talking heads won't tell you because it will cut into their revenue stream, which depends on their ability to stoke your fear. The collapse of Christian influence won't end with Christianity being canceled. The church of Jesus Christ prevails against the gates of hell, according to its founder, and to say that Christianity will be canceled and will no longer exist is to call the founder a liar. I'm not going to do that. But it will end with Christianity being dismissed, opposed, despised, but largely ignored. It will end with American Christianity looking like Western European Christianity or Canadian Christianity. And if you're younger 
Then your 40s, which I understand on both campuses probably doesn't include this service as much as it will the 11 o'clock service. That transformation will be complete in your lifetime. But I don't say that to scare anybody. If you really believe what you claim to believe, it shouldn't scare anybody. But it should cause all of us to hold a funeral for Christ against culture, Christ of culture thinking, and adopt a truly biblical approach to living faithfully in a faith-hostile world. And to that end, we start a brief six-week series from the first part of the Old Testament book of Daniel, which I affectionately refer to as the non-weird part of the book of Daniel. And I hope you've already found Daniel 1 in your copy of God's Word. Daniel lived in the final days of the Jewish state existing as it had since the time essentially of King David. The glory days of the Jewish religion were long, long gone, and what existed was a hollow spiritual shell of what might have been. As for the Jewish nation, limited only to the tribe of Judah at this point in history, it was nothing but a, a geopolitical football for the world powers at the time, an ascendant Babylon and an Egypt that was on the decline. Now, the crown prince of the Babylonian Empire, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, had defeated Egypt in what historians call the Battle of Carchemish, and had begun to throw his weight around the region, reminding vassal states of which Judah was one, that there was a new sheriff in town, so to speak. This actually ended up being his first act as king because Nebuchadnezzar's father died while he was on the field, and that's where we pick up Daniel's story in verse 1 of Daniel 1. That's also where we begin to learn what it takes to live faithfully in a faith-hostile world. First, to live faithfully in a faith-hostile world demands confidence in God's supremacy. Confidence in God's supremacy. The first verse underlines the background of what I just shared. Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, putting the word as besieged in English is actually a little stronger than what it actually was. It wasn't great, but it wasn't as if the city was surrounded by armies to have it destroyed. It was surrounded, but it was a strategic show of force. Jehoiakim has been installed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt as a means of having loyal kings on his eastern frontier as a buffer between him and Nebuchadnezzar. And now that Nebuchadnezzar was in power, he wanted to make sure that the king of Judah was loyal to him on his western frontier as a buffer between him and a diminished but still powerful Egypt. And he couldn't trust Jehoiakim because Jehoiakim had uh, kind of put his thumb in the wind multiple times and decided who he thought was going to be a winner, and he'd kind of switched horses over and over again. That's not the kind of loyalty that Nebuchadnezzar wanted. So he installed his own king. And then he did this. Look at verse three or verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, 
of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, all of that's really pretty standard operating procedure if you're throwing your geopolitical weight around in the latter part of the 7th century B.C. You took items from a defeated nation's temple and placed them in the temple of your God to show that your God was greater. You removed the defeated king from his throne to show that you were a greater king, and you took the best and the brightest a nation had to offer as political prisoners to be educated and trained to serve the needs of your kingdom to show that your kingdom was greater. But there was clearly a little bit of upside to that whole political prisoner gig. Babylon was the center of knowledge at this point in the ancient world, and you could get a world-class education and, and a world of one, a political prisoner would, would get to eat the very same food that the king of a great empire was eating. So it was a gilded cage, but it was a cage. And into that cage goes our boy Daniel and three of his friends. Look at verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. Azariah he called Abednego. Now, if you've got a good study Bible, and frankly, I hope you do, you understand the significance of those name changes if you read the notes. Each of the four Hebrew men who were really teenagers at this point have names that are declarations in some way about God. Each of the changed names are declarations in some way about the Babylonian God. So not only are these young men being stripped of their home and being stripped of their identity, they are being stripped of the most personal public marker of their faith. So not a great story first seven verses of Daniel 1. And you could read these seven verses and conclude easily that Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world and everyone in the world was at the utter mercy of whatever whim he had. But you think that only because you overlooked three key words, words which will be used in one form or another, three separate times in Daniel 1 to provide the structural backbone of the chapter. And words which in these first verses remind us that to live faithfully in a faith-hostile world demands confidence in God's supremacy. So what are the three words? Here they are. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. Now, I'll show you two other times Daniel 1 uses these words as we go, but how it's phrased here is unique to the chapter. Here the words are the Lord gave, while the other two references are God gave. So why the change? Because it communicates who really is in power. The word Lord in Daniel's language means owner, 
sovereign, ruler. And it is intentionally juxtaposed here with King Nebuchadnezzar's title as king to show that even the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful man that the world had ever known to this point, served God's purposes and not his own. In fact, if you know a thing or two about the Old Testament, you realize that everything detailed in verses 2 through 7 are in fulfillment of decrees God made through his prophets decades before. The removal of the temple objects and the sons of Judah being carried into captivity had all been announced by God through prophets in previous generations. And if you are familiar with the book of Daniel... You realize that these objects taken from the temple in Jerusalem to demonstrate the defeat of Israel's God are used by Israel's God in Daniel chapter 6 to announce judgment on the Babylonians and the Babylonian gods that were supposed to be supreme several decades later. The point is that as bleak as everything looked to human eyes, the temple desecrated, Jerusalem weakened, captives taken. God was still utterly and completely in control. If I could characterize God's people in this era of collapsing Christian influence, it would be by using the word panicked. And if I could pinpoint the cause of that panic, it would be the failure of the typical American Christian to grasp that God is sovereign over all of human history, including American history, including American church history, and that he is in full and in complete control. But I don't say that to reassure everyone that everything's going to be fine. Daniel and his life and the lives of his friends would routinely be an extreme danger even in the gilded cage in which they lived. And their home of Jerusalem was less than 20 years from being destroyed by the king who held them hostage. So we aren't being reminded that God is in control here to set us up for happily ever after. We are being reminded that God is in control because panic isn't a fruit of the Spirit. It is not. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, and also panic. It's not. It's not a fruit of the Spirit, and it doesn't glorify God. But when we are confident that even in the midst of extraordinarily trying times that God is in full control of history, then we're free to worry less about what happens next or in trying to read ridiculous tea leaves to determine the date of our rescue and are instead freed to serve the very purposes God is accomplishing in the way that he has orchestrated our lives to accomplish them. Much the way Daniel and his friends do in the rest of chapter 1 until their story concludes in Daniel 6. Listen, you cannot be faithful and hysterical at the same time. And large swaths of what calls itself American Christianity is hysterical, which is why we have been utter failures at being faithful. Faithful living demands confidence in God's supremacy. 
over all things. And Daniel 1 also shows us that it demands confidence in God's favor. Let's keep reading in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? And then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, those verses have been the subject of a million children's Sunday school lessons and a whole lot of stupid books on Christian dieting. And because of that, as we read them, we, we read them focusing on Daniel's heroism or on the food's benefits. But the whole thing is supernatural. And so our focus should be on God and how the favor he gave Daniel placed him in a position to gain glory for God that Nebuchadnezzar had attempted to strip from God through this name change and other things. But before we can have all of that come into its clearest focus, we need to ask a couple of questions. First, how would the food from the king's table defile Daniel? It's actually not a simple question to answer as you might think specifically, so we have to speculate a bit. But they likely requested vegetables because of both what kinds of meats they were being served and how those meats were being prepared. They wouldn't have been, to use our word, kosher. And faithful Jews of the time quite literally observed religiously the Jewish dietary laws. Water is a little bit more of a puzzle because wine wasn't prohibited by Jewish law. But a pagan custom of the time would have been to dedicate wine to whatever deity was being worshipped. So maybe they objected because of its association with those pagan deities. We just can't be certain of why the food and the wine would defile them. Only that Daniel and his friends believed that partaking of them would defile them. What we know for certain is that God gave them favor with their overseer, and this, by extension, allowed them to bear witness to their overseer of God's continued faithfulness to them. But the favor runs deeper than that, which leads to our second question. Why do Daniel and his friends 
draw the line here. From the perspective of Jewish legalists, multiple lines would have been crossed at this point. They had undertaken a course of study that had them learning the ways of the stars and interpreting various signs to advise the king, both with direct occultic overtones. They had apparently agreed to be known in public by their new names in honor of a false god, even though these verses and the rest of the book make clear they thought of themselves using their original names. So they had been up against some things that would have made a faithful Jew shudder already, but here... With the food, they draw the line. Why? Here's the answer. No idea. No idea why this is the line. It might be that they were learning the information required of them to get a passing grade, as it were, without incorporating it into their worldview, which is surely true. And it might be that they accepted the new names but personally rejected the new identity, which we've already seen is surely true. But to eat the food in their minds would have required active participation in something that they saw no way around. The fact of the matter is that we just don't know why the line was here. But, and here's the point to grasp, they knew convictionally, that this was the line. How did they know? God's favor. God let them know that this was the line. The true north of their moral compass, regardless of what situation they found themselves to be in, pointed to God. And he gave them the ability to know how to navigate what a pagan culture demanded of them and when to say, this we cannot do, and to quote Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. When it came time to make a decision, God favored them with having the wisdom to know what to do. There isn't a person in the workplace or in public education who hasn't spent considerable time asking themselves how to navigate the gender identity politics that have literally swamped life in America. At the ground level, the question's simple. How can I navigate this topic and keep my job? But the godliest among us are asking a deeper question. How can I navigate this topic and demonstrate love to others while still maintaining my convictions? Do I use preferred pronouns even if they don't line up with biological sex? Do I call a person by the new name they have chosen for themselves? Do I go to the wedding of a gay friend? And we ask these questions with, here's the word again, sometimes panic in our voices. Daniel shows us that God favors the faithful with the wisdom to know how to navigate these lines without going over them and how to know when the time comes when we can no longer navigate the lines. And he shows us how to do that, how to take a stand that honors God. Look back at verse 8 of chapter 1. 
But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he called Alliance Defending Freedom. No. Therefore, he called into the American Family Association. No. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, don't get me wrong. Daniel wasn't in a cultural situation like ours where we have rights and freedoms that allow us to defend ourselves. My point is that we've become accustomed to our first impulse being to launch the missiles or to grandstand, things which we are comfortable doing because a good many of us have zero relationship with people who don't follow Jesus or have zero relationship with other Jesus followers who don't already agree with us on everything we already uh, believe. And so in the absence of relationship, it's natural to treat people not like us as enemies. Daniel and his friends didn't have an enemy in their overseer. They had someone that they cared about on some level. Maybe even counted in, in some way as a friend. We know that because they're sensitive to his objection to change their plan because it might literally cost their overseer his life if it didn't go well. So they adjusted their request to accommodate his fear. And, and they didn't grandstand or make a public Stink from all appearances in the text. This was a private meeting, and the rest of the young men had no idea what had transpired. So God favored them with not only knowing what to do, here's the line, but how to, in a way that honored God, stay on the side of the line they needed to be on. Now, again, don't get me wrong. We have every reason to believe that Daniel and his friends were willing to die to remain obedient to God. And later on in the book, they're actually subjected to unsuccessful executions. So being favored with knowing what to do and how to do it doesn't always mean that you're going to finish the story on the top side of the dirt. Do you hear me? But it does mean that you'll always gain glory for God. You can live faithfully in a faith-hostile world if you understand that as God's child through Jesus, you always have His favor. And you always have access to God. And so the most important thing any of us could do as we seek to engage culture is not to devour biased news but it's to seek the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we are prepared when the lines hit us to know exactly what to do and how to go about doing it. Finally, to live faithful lives in a faith-hostile world demands confidence in God's equipping. Let's wrap things up by looking at the last verses of Daniel 1. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. 
At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. There's indication they held on to their names. That was their identity that couldn't be taken away. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And to give you a time marker, that means about 70 years. If in the previous verses we saw God's favor in his giving these four Hebrew young men the ability to know what to do and how to do it, In these last verses, we see him favoring the young men with the ability to fulfill his purposes for their lives. They were going into the very heart of a culture diametrically opposed to everything they stood for, and yet they were going to be able to serve that culture for its good without compromising their faith one iota because as we saw in verse 17, God gave them the ability to do that. Again, we've got to be careful about drawing exact line-to-line comparisons between our cultural situation and Daniel's, but I think we can safely say that if God can equip Daniel to serve the very culture that attempted to strip him of his home and attempted to strip him of his identity and attempted to strip him of his God, then he quite possibly can equip us to serve the faith, culture, world in which we find ourselves. But Daniel's example shows us that doing so will require us to explore our culture. I've gotten into big trouble two times in the 15 years I've been pastor here for something I said from the pulpit. By that, I mean I've had multiple meetings and phone calls and emails for something I said from the pulpit twice. So far, there's still time. Once was because I was stupid and incomplete in something I said. I do not believe I was wrong biblically in what I said. I was just stupid and incomplete in what I said. But the other time was for something I said that I believe was dead to rights by the Bible and some folks just didn't want to hear it. I was preaching from Acts 17 and Paul's message to the pagan philosophers of Mars Hill in Athens, a message where he referenced Athenian art and literature as a means of building a bridge for the gospel into their pagan world. And here's what I said. I pulled it from my manuscript, dated January the 4th, 2015. I said to the church, what is required to connect with culture? Two things that will always require very intentional effort. Here are the two things I shared. You must be a committed student of culture, and you must be a committed disciple of Jesus. And then I broke that down. I said, being a committed student of culture means that you must study it with a discerning eye. Here's where I began to set off alarm bells for people. If there is a movie everyone is talking about, you need to see it. If there's a book everyone is reading, you need to read it. If there's a song everyone is singing, you need to listen to it. If there's a meta-narrative everyone is using to give meaning to the world, you need to understand it. And lots of people completely exploded when, when I said that, and they quit listening to the rest of it, which was, and if actively... 
Watching, reading, listening to any of those things would expose you to subjects and words and images that are inappropriate for a Jesus follower to intake. And I think far too many of us, I said this, I think far too many of us are far too comfortable with taking in far too much. Then you need to read what critical thinkers and reviewers are saying about it. And I finish by saying, because nestled in those things will be connection points for the gospel. Paul found it in the idols of Athens. You need to find it in the pop culture of America. I got blistered. I heard people almost walked out with their families. One guy met with me, and it was clear he had stopped listening to what I said in that little section almost immediately. So, preparing for that meeting, I read to him what I just read to you. I pulled up my notes. Let me tell you what I read here. He said, well, that's not what you said. I was ready for that. I said, well, let's go to the tape. I spun my computer around, and I had the sermon tape (laughs) cued to that point. I hit play. We listened to it. And he said, well, I still don't think that's what you said. I said, okay, buddy. He's no longer here. He refused to acknowledge what I was trying to accomplish. Why? Because people have been taught to war against culture to the point that they do not build bridges for the gospel to culture. As a result, we refuse to study it, and God can equip us to reach it. Listen to me. Daniel and his friends were required by their captors to become deeply acquainted with the writings and worldview that informed their faith-hostile culture. They were required by God to do this without surrendering their confidence and commitment to Him. And because God gave them the ability to do that, for the next 70 years, God had a culturally astute but righteously committed man named Daniel in the seat of power bearing witness to the glory of God. God can equip us for this and keep us faithful if we can trust him enough to engage. The call of everyone in this room is to live a faithful life in a faith-hostile world. And we simply can't do that by doing everything we've been doing for the last 50 years. And today we've learned that the starting point for that is confidence in God, His supremacy, His favor, His equipping us for His service. So where do we start? Might I suggest this, that we ruthlessly remove from our lives any voice or influence that undermines our confidence in God or that builds up our own sense of self-righteousness. We are constantly surrounded and feeding on voices that say, all Democrats are Marxists. All Republicans are fascists. All men are bad. All women are liars. All Christians are hypocrites. And it goes on and on and on and makes us more fearful and depressed and angry. And it shrinks our view of God into something that is biblically unrecognizable. And when this happens, we will make unforced errors. We will cross lines we shouldn't cross. Or we will alienate people. We are called to win for Jesus 
or we will isolate from people who God has put in our lives to partner alongside to make the gospel known. We'll isolate and we'll speculate and our influence will deteriorate. In short, we'll keep living the insanity of the last 50 years of American Christianity. But if we ruthlessly shut down these voices, that shrink God. And turn just a fraction of the time that we've been hearing those voices, voices towards hearing the voice of God. We just might figure out that the world is not as scary a place as we thought. Not because it isn't hostile to you and everything you believe. And not because it won't grow more so. It will be because your confidence that God is bigger than all of that. And can use you to accomplish his purposes in the mess that is around us. Let's pray together.